Welcome to Writer Types, the crime and mystery fiction podcast. My name is Eric Beatner, and his name is S.W. Loudon. Who's on the show this time, Steve? We caught up with author Joe Clifford, who perfectly explains what it means to be alive in 2018. You know, I spent a lot of time online because uh, I'm lonely like that. And we asked Lisa Brackman if she thought we were going to win the Anthony Award for Best Online Content. Um, no. <laughs> um, no. no. <laughs> Plus, we get a visit from our resident book reviewers and an exclusive look at a new true crime podcast called The Long Dance. But first, Steve, you know, we have uh, two former musicians as guests on the show today. Have you read any good uh, rock and roll novels lately? I've actually read a couple of rock biographies and autobiographies. Uh, After hooking up with Joe Clifford outside the Frank Turner concert in Hollywood, I read his touring autobiography, The Road Beneath My Feet, which is just a great explanation of what it's like to break in in the rock world. I mean, the guy just took every show that was offered to him, and he played thousands before anybody knew who he was just with his acoustic guitar. And I'm also reading Meet Me in the Bathroom by Lizzie Goodman, which is a book about the New York rock scene in the 1990s and early 2000s, you know, bands like The Strokes and Mooney Suzuki and Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. But I'm personally mostly reading it because of the band Jonathan Fire Eater, who I always really loved. Yeah. How about you, Eric? Any, any good rock bios or books you've read recently? Uh, you know, one of the rock bios that I really loved uh, in recent years was My Damage by Keith Morris uh, and co-written by Jim Ruland. Uh, you know, Keith, as uh, you surely know, was uh, the original singer of Black Flag and then went on to uh, lead the Circle Jerks. And he is uh, known for not pulling any punches. He's rather outspoken. And this book was uh, just as upfront and straightforward as I wanted it to be, but, uh, you know, full of just great stories from back in the day. And that's South Bay, you know, Hermosa Beach, early days of the punk hardcore scene. Jim Rulin did a great job of of corralling what I'm sure was a a rather unruly telling of of the Keith story. So congrats to that. Well, so you went to to this Frank Turner show with uh, with Joe Clifford. I could not make it and I was very sad about that because I've really been digging Frank Turner's new album uh, and I always love hanging out with Joe despite what he says and thinks. Uh, so uh, how did it go out there? Well, I mean, look, I grew up going to shows at the Palladium and I try to get back there as much as I can. Like in recent years, I've seen the replacements there. I've seen the descendants there. Uh, I've seen Jawbreaker there. So there's a lot of throwback stuff that I've gone to see recently, but I've never really gone with many of my crime writer friends. So it was great to hook up with Joe Clifford and Danny Gardner and to go to this show out there. But Joe Clifford is the author of the Jay Porter series, including the fourth book, Broken Ground. He also wrote the autobiographical novel, Junkie Love. But more importantly, he's a huge music fan. And uh, we start this interview just moments after I spilled a whole cup of water on his lap at Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. This is what happens when I'm not with you, Steve. Seriously, there was water spilled all over the place that night. (laughs) Welcome to the club, Joe. I've been there before. All right, I am standing outside of the Hollywood Palladium with author Joe Clifford, and we are both here to see English singer-songwriter and punk rock troubadour Frank Turner. How did you discover Frank Turner's music, Joe? I heard Frank on, uh, 
think it was K-Fog at San Francisco, and he was playing a song, Recovery. And so, yeah, any songs about people on drugs and not doing it anymore, it sort of piques my interest. And uh, it's just a really good fucking song. I mean, it had a, you know, a little bit of a replacement feel to it, a little bit of a Smith's bounce to it. So, yeah, and then I, I started listening to him, and he's fantastic. When I listen to Frank Turner's music, it reminds me of a lot of other great British songwriters like Robin Hitchcock or Billy Bragg. Is it possible for you to listen to new music without hearing the musicians that might have influenced it? You know, I just, you know, I spent a lot of time online because uh, I'm lonely like that. And uh, there was just something about, I think it was Chuck Wendig posted. It was like, after 30, you can't appreciate new music. Uh, and so I don't know if you can do that. I mean, I don't know if you listen to new music without automatically hearing the music it reminds you of. Because I'm 47, right? Like, so I don't know if there's any kind of new style that is going to grab my attention. Like, I never caught on to really got onto hip-hop or got... I don't know. Is there any real new music? I don't know. I mean, this is all anything that sounds like Springsteen and brings me back to Springsteen is kind of where I go. So all these bands, you know, the Gaslight Anthem and Hold Steady and Frank Turner, they all have a bit of that Springsteen, that narrative sort of, you know, down and out guy, which is, I mean, what I write about, what I read about, you know, so it's the same kind of appeal. Does the same hold true for the crime authors you read? Can you read a crime novel at this point and not read the influences? Oh, jeez, man, that's a hard question. I don't, you know, I don't even know anymore. I mean, I just know what I like and what I read, which tends to be all women writers writing domestic suspense thrillers. That's all I read now. So Gillian Flynn and Wendy Walker and Jennifer Hillier and, uh, you know, Paula Hawkins, all those. I don't, so, I don't know, are they reminding me of, you know, the tough guy P.I. fiction I used to read? Probably not. I mean, I probably read them now precisely because they don't remind me of that. But I also neglected an entire half of the population for a long time, women writers, and now that I realize what I've missed out on, I can't get enough. What would your protagonist, Jay Porter, make of your musical tastes? Are you guys aligned on music? <laughs> you know, he'd probably fucking be sad about it. I don't know. I mean, Jay is me, but I'm not Jay. That's what I always say. So, I mean, Jay likes Springsteen. Um, I don't think Jay would have quite as an eclectic a taste in music. I mean, not that I'm terribly, you know, diverse, but Jay, I think, is much more of a, um, you know, if it's not in the radio, I'm not listening to it kind of guy, although his radio seldom seems to work in the books. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he'd like Frank enough. I mean, Jay's a little more self-absorbed than I am, if that's possible. Uh, but... <laughs> So I think I think you'd like it. I, I hope you'd like it. I mean, I write the fucking guy. Yeah, of course he likes my music. I made I made him up. It's not real. Wait, Jay Porter's not real? Jay Porter is actually based on my, my my brother Jay Streeter, who's just oh, a sweetheart of a guy. We here, here, I'll tell you what. Here's how life and like fiction intersect, right? So Jay Porter's based on my brother Jay Streeter. I mean, Jay Streeter's a much better guy than Jay Porter, but that's just Jay. And, like, that's the part of Jay, my brother, that I put into Jay Porter, where you know, guys who do their best, right, and they try their absolute best, and they really do have the best of intentions, but they can't ever seem to quite go right. And that's just a characteristic or a trait I picked up from my brother, who's always, you know, it's like, you know, as soon as he gets a 1000 bucks saved, his transmission goes. So it's always, he's just one of these guys who was born under a bad sign or, you know, always behind the eight ball, where I've, I've always had really good luck. My brother Jay has had just, just shit luck. You published your fourth Jay Porter book, Broken Ground, and you already submitted your fifth and final book in the series to your publisher. So how does it feel to have reached the end of this chapter in your writing life? 
Well, most importantly, I mean, the, the chapter closes because my publisher read the fifth book and I liked it, which has been <laughs> hanging over my head like a motherfucker for weeks because if they didn't like it, what was I going to do? I mean, I, I wrote the fifth book and I ended it the exact way I wanted to. I mean, I felt like I got great closure. I wrote the exact book I wanted to write, but it came together so well. I was worried because, I mean, nothing ever works out that well, right? Especially in Jay Porterland. So, no, it's great. I mean, I, I want to be doing something else because Jay's not a guy you can, you know, he's, he's a hard guy to live in that skin, you know. He's a, you know, I'm down, I'm depressed, I'm all these things, but Jay is just all these things magnified. And um, it'll take me a while to forget, like, holy shit, I'm not as depressed as Jay. Like, my life isn't that bad. My life's pretty good. Uh, but, you know, you spend time writing a character for so long, you, you kind of become that character. In addition to the Jay Porter books, you've written several other books, including a new standalone thriller called The One That Got Away, and that comes out this December from Down and Out Books. What's that one about? Uh, yeah, so that's about upstate New York, sort of. My mom grew up in upstate New York, and I'd always had this, I don't want to say affinity, I guess attachment to the region. There's something particularly... Uh, I don't know, I, the texture of upstate New York, there's nowhere else in the country, I'll put it this way, so the reason I saw this like BuzzFeed article, it was like, you know, the 10 most depressing places to live in North America, or in the United States, and like 7 of the 10 were in, were in upstate New York, like, that's just the place, that's how I grew up, so I would leave Connecticut, like this idyllic, like little, you know, farm town, we have nice, you know, everything's green, I just remember being on the bus, the Greyhound bus, and everything just kind of like the color would wash out and like the trees would be stripped to the leaves. And that, obviously that's my memory of it. And it's not quite that profound. But like that's how I remember upstate New York. So I want to revisit that. You know, just like the Porter stuff, the setting is very much a, a character in the story. The setting here is very much a character. And you had mentioned earlier that you're reading a lot of female thriller authors who are writing psychological thrillers and domestic suspense. And I happen to notice that Paula Hawkins blurbed this new book. How did you make that happen? Uh, by just being tenacious. Uh, I think she just wanted to get rid of me. No, she, she was really nice. She's a sweetheart. And I just, you know, I'd read Girl on the Train, and, uh, and it was just such a remarkable... Uh, you know, Gone Girl and Girl on the Train are the two books in the last, whatever, 10 years that, that left me absolutely floored. And so I'd written her and been like, you know, Jesus, I mean, just, you know, you're amazing. And, uh, you know, a little bit, a little bit of fanboying. And, uh, and she was just really kind and gracious and receptive. And, uh, you know, I told her I wrote and, you know, that's how it happened. I went up and saw her read somewhere and I asked her and she said, yeah. Okay. So as mentioned at the top of the interview, we are both here to see Frank Turner tonight at the Hollywood Palladium. If you were magically given the chance to meet Frank Turner after the show tonight and he agreed to read one of your books, which book would you hand him and why? Well, I mean, I have met Frank Turner once. He actually just re responded to an email the other day, which was really fucking cool. Um, but uh, I'd give him Junkie Love because I just read Frank's uh, The Road Beneath My Feet, which is a fucking awesome autobiography. And reading that book, I'm like, holy shit, he really would like Junkie Love, but of course you can't ever... You know, like, hey, you should read my book. Which is, you know, hey, thanks for accepting my friend, friend request. You want to buy my book? Um, but yeah, no, he's awesome, and uh, and I would give him junkie love, and I, I think he'd see that we're we could be best friends. Awesome, thanks, Joe. Well, it's time now, Steve, for a visit from our resident reviewers, Kate and Dan Malman. Is there anything better than a visit from the Malmans, Eric? Um, no. <laughs> Well, Dan and Kate, uh, new format. We should give you guys a new theme song. Oh. Like, yeah, like, oh. Dan and Kate, they are really great. Dan, come on, Steve, where's my beat? Dan and Kate, 
You really think I'm going to join in with that nonsense? (laughs) All right. Kate, I want to start with you this episode because you got your hands on a book that I am irrationally excited about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Upper Hand by Johnny Shaw. It's fantastic. It's three siblings, one of which happens to be named Gretchen Beatner. Yeah, don't remind me. (laughs) And her brother is Axel and Kurt, and the three of them, their mother passes away and leaves all of her money to a TV evangelist. And a long-lost aunt shows up and is like, hey, I can help you. And then bad decisions start happening from there. Well, so hold on a second. Gretchen Beatner is a character here. I also heard there was a character with the last name Loudon. There was. Is the character a handsome multimillionaire race car driver who has a secret lair on the moon? They didn't give it that much backstory, so I'm going to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was implied, right? Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah okay, okay, go on Go on with your review. <laughs> We're big fans of Johnny Shaw here uh, at the show, as everyone should be. So this mm-hmm. one, uh, does it follow his, uh, his usual uh, fiasco path of uh, mayhem and madness? Oh, right. Yeah. It's, it's very similar to a lot of his other books in that it revolves around family. Something that I've been noticed through all of his books is there's this thread in the importance of family, whether it's your birth family, your biological family, the family that you just kind of fall into. That's kind of the central theme. It also, like all of his other books, revolves around a parent dying. Are you saying that you have discovered the secret formula to Johnny Shaw's genius? I may have unlocked it. Don't get too excited, because that's also the secret formula behind every Disney movie ever. (laughs) Well, there's that too. Kate, on a scale of one to five, how would you rate this book? I would give it a four. We'll read the sequel, if there is one. Okay, but on a scale of one to Johnny Shaw, how would you rate this book? I'd give it a Johnny. (laughs) Yeah, you would. Dan, you you read Fred Van Lent's The Con Artist. What I need to know is, is an illustrated whodunit set at Comic-Con like winning the geek lottery for you? I don't know, but um, geek lottery, maybe. I'm just going to, every month, I'm just pressing Eric Beatner's buttons. And I'm beating back against the uh, the embargo on no comics. I, I, support, I support it, Dan, because you and I share this, this same thing, which is an unabashed love of the things that we love with no apologies. Which right. is Steve Loudon, right? <laughs> uh, we didn't say that. I said it for you because I felt like you were too embarrassed to say it. All right. Well, Dan, tell us about this book that seems like it was custom written just for you. Absolutely. So uh, The Con Artist by uh, Fred Van Lint, illustrations by Tom Fowler, is coming out next month on the 10th. And it's an absolute joy. So Fred Van Lent is a veteran uh, comic book writer. This is his second prose novel. Uh, The first one actually is called uh, Ten Dead Comedians, and I just started it today. But The Con Artist is a murder mystery set at San Diego Comic-Con. And it stars Mike Miller, um, who's a veteran comic artist. But um, basically, a couple years ago, his wife uh, was having a torrid affair with his sleazy editor, and Miller says, to act with it, he walks away from his marriage, he walks away from his house, and he kind of walks away from his career. And he's, he's effectively homeless. He lives at Comic-Cons. But when he gets to Comic-Con this year, the sleazy editor is, uh, shows up dead on the convention floor. And, of course, he's suspect number one. 
Now this it has illustrations, right? But it's, it's not. This is not a graphic novel, but it has no. drawings interspersed throughout. Yes. Yeah. Very. Um, it, it's not. Uh, uh, not a graphic novel by any sense. But like some of the main chapter points are done um, on these really cool um, sketch pad look because it, he's going around and he's an artist. So it's it's his mnemonic device. You know how he's remembering stuff, and then you see that. Dan, I'd like to know on a scale of one to five, how would you rate this book? Well, it's got, it says something good, I think, right off the bat that you've already jumped into his other novel. That's always a good sign. I would give it a three and a half would cosplay again. It is fast and it's funny. I mean, I really liked it because it's the book is more than just wisecracks. There's a good mystery in there. Steve, how can I get you to be about more than just the wisecracks? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that it's possible, especially after I've had 19 cups of coffee. <laughs> well... Dan and Kate, thank you so much for joining us. That is uh, an enticing uh, look at two upcoming books. Uh, I look forward to hearing what's coming down the pike next time. I look forward to hearing our new theme music. <laughs> I think I just got shot down. Oh, no, no, no. You're leaving in your singing of that theme music. And I hope <laughs> that you include the video of the little dance you did while sure. doing it. Yeah, I can do that. I have two guitars right next to me right now. I'm going to start working on this as soon as we hang up. Dan, are you think you think you're more of like a minor chord kind of thing? Or what? I want whatever blue based rock is based off of. All right, see you next time, Dan and Kate. Great <laughs> <laughs> okay, talking with you. Bye. <laughs> Crime writer Eric Pruitt has been a guest on the show, and he joins us now to talk about a new project, but not a book this time, Eric. You know, in addition to being an author, Pruitt is a filmmaker and now a documentary podcaster. And his new true crime podcast, The Long Dance, is a chilling real-life tale of a murder in his home state of North Carolina. And he's here to share an exclusive sneak peek with us. All right, Eric, you write you make films and now you're launching a really ambitious podcast project. Have you always been this unfocused? Uh, uh, what, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a, you know, I, I fancy myself a consumer of uh, really good storytelling first. You know, uh, I, I've always been turned on by great movies. And as soon as you see something really good, you, you, you want to make a movie. You know, I was practically born with a book in my hand. And so, uh, you know, it was always a lifetime mission to try and write a book as well as some of the books that I was able to read. But one of the most um, transformative storytelling experiences I've probably had and consumed was when Serial came out, uh, the true crime podcast Serial. As soon as I heard that, I was so blown away. And they were releasing it week to week. So, you know, you couldn't wait for the next chapter. And as soon as I finished listening to that, I was like, oh, my God, I got to I want to do that. It was always this itch that I was just dying to scratch and looking for any opportunity if I could to do something like what Serial did. Well, then you found this story that became the long dance, this real story. Tell us how that came about. Drew Adamek is an investigative reporter that had just moved into the area here in Durham. And he met me after he read one of my Indie Week pieces in our, our local newspaper. And he met me in the bar where I was working and challenged me and said, hey, I want to do a deep dive. I want to do some investigative reporting and do like a three or four part deep dive 
piece for local news. And we challenged each other to go home and find five stories that we could do a deeper investigation into. And we would meet in a week and compare notes. When I found what is now referred to as the North Carolina Valentine's murders, that was the only story. I came back to that meeting with one. There was never any question which story we were going to cover. I'm sure for our listeners out there, uh, after that setup, you're as excited about hearing this podcast as we are. The whole thing is not launching until the week of July 4th, uh, but we have an exclusive clip. So Eric, why don't you set that clip up for us? Well, in 1971, out here in Durham, North Carolina, Patricia Mann, a 20-year-old nursing student from Watt School of Nursing, and her 19-year-old boyfriend, Jesse McBain, left a Valentine's dance at, at Watts Hospital. They uh, were not seen again. For two weeks, the entire town of Durham went nuts looking for him. And it wasn't until February 25th, same year, when a land surveyor marking a property line out in the woods found their bodies. They'd been tied to a tree. They'd been tortured, strangled, and then covered with leaves. As you can imagine, a small town such as Durham back at that time went insane. Wow. All right. I, I'm excited. Uh, let's uh, go to a clip. Sometime between 11 and 11.30, Pat and Jesse left the dance. They were last seen getting into their car and heading north down Maryland Avenue, presumably toward their favorite spot to go parking in the undeveloped Crowsdale neighborhood. They never returned. The house mother came up to our room right when, when Pat didn't check in. Yeah. So it, it must have been, what was, what was Friday night? One o'clock. One o'clock? All right, so by 1.10, she was in our room yeah. asking if Pat was there. And from there, we went to Gail's room. And then from Gail's room, we went to every room. And they called the police. And then we and called the Durham hours. police. Her mom and I were sitting at the kitchen table eating, and her sister Ada came over, and she said, I've got some news. She said something's wrong. And she said that uh, Pat was missing, that she had gone to the dance, that she didn't show back up at the dorm. Eric, that is some intense stuff. Where can people find out more about this podcast and what is the actual launch date? Our website is longdancepodcast.com. And we will be launching on July 3rd, all eight episodes. And they'll be available on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you find your favorite true crime podcast. Well, Steve, I have a really long commute right now, so I am excited for this podcast. That is going to hold me over for, uh, for a while. I'm guessing it's going to hold me over for exactly one day because I'll probably binge the whole thing on the day that it all drops. It's, it sounds like the kind of show that if the episode is not finished by the time I arrive to work, I'll probably just sit in my car in the parking garage until the episode's over. Well, speaking of sitting in cars, Steve, we recently hosted another of our Noir at the Bar events here in L.A. And while we were there, we caught up with author Lisa Brackman in our mobile writer type studio. Brackman is the author of the Ellie McEnroe novels, also Getaway and The Go-Between. Now she has a new standalone novel, Black Swan Rising, which is out later this year. We're in the Writer Types impromptu mobile recording studio, which is my Subaru, which is currently parked 
on La Cienega. Because we're right outside of the Mandrake Bar where we host our Noir at the Bar readings. Oh, right, right, right. And who's in the back seat, Steve? It's, it's Lisa Brackman, none other. Hi. <laughs> Welcome, Lisa. So good to see you again. I'm very happy to be here in this mobile studio. <laughs> I went ahead and took the liberty of accessing your secret bio that's on your very public website. Uh-oh. Um, and from what I can tell, you're somebody who's always dreamed big. You've wanted to be an astronaut, secretary of state, a rock star, and, a, and I quote, a famous Hollywood screenwriter. And now you're a best-selling author. Do your books allow you to achieve those other ambitions through some of your characters? Um, no. Uh, I don't really write about any wildly successful people. I generally write about people who are in a difficult point in their lives, and then, of course, their lives become even much more difficult because otherwise you wouldn't have much of a book. <laughs> yeah. Do you find that your own uh, difficulties enter into your, your storytelling? Is, does that sound like something that maybe comes from your own struggles, or is this all made up? The parallels in my books... Um, to events in my own life tend to be more of emotional resonances than actual experiences. I mean, I've had the experience, the second book that I wrote was about a character who had had a sort of a comfortable life and then had that all abruptly uh, taken away um, and her sort of inability to adapt and cope to that. And that actually happened to me after I was in the middle of working on that book. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's uh, predictive. You're writing your own fate. Um, and yeah, and I'm going to have to really come up with some better plots <laughs> that's the case. So your Ellie McEnroe books are about an Iraq veteran expat living in China. As a Westerner, how difficult is it to set your books in that location? Well, you look around for something that you can offer a perspective on that might be a little bit unique. And I had been going to, to China since 1979, and I spent a big chunk of time there when I was young. And then I started going back. I went back once in 93, and then I started going back once a year in 1999. So I decided to, that was a, a, a deliberate choice to use something that I had in my background that I had not actually seen written about, um, you know, because most of the books that are focusing on China that are written by Westerners tend to be period pieces, historicals. And I wasn't seeing people that were actually dealing with modern China and modern Chinese cities and the kinds of things that I would see when I would go. And then is that the kind of stuff where you, you're visiting and you're seeing life there on a street level and stories start to form in your head, plots are hitting you as you're walking the streets? Or was that something that once you left and landed back home, you started thinking back on it and the plot came out of that. Well, I mean, when you, I started going once a year again in 1999 and I didn't start writing Rock, Paper, Tiger. That was written, the bulk of that was written in 2007. So I had, I wasn't really thinking in terms of writing a book when I was doing these visits. I was um, really interested in working on my Mandarin. That was sort of my primary thing. I had friends I liked to visit. And I was really interested in the contemporary Chinese art scene because I found that whole combination of art oftentimes which had a very overt political component to it in the context of an authoritarian state to be a really interesting thing so I was sort of investigating all of that but not with the mind to write anything necessarily and then later when I decided to write the book around you know 2006 and um and I wrote it in 2007 I got to make a couple more trips back um you know I went during the Olympics I went a but I went like three times in 2009 so can you uh say hello to all of our Mandarin uh, listeners I, I, ni hao, huh? can you say you're listening to writer types 
，你现在呃，就是我们朋友的 podcast， 名字是 Writer Types。There you go. So you've obviously set books in China, you set books in Mexico, and in Northern California. But your next book, Black Swan Rising, is set in San Diego. So what took you so long to write about your hometown? Well. I lived away from it for a long time.、Um, I was living in in Venice Beach in L.A. I lived up here for over 25 years, and when I moved back to San Diego, I really like walking, and so I would just you know go out of my way to to walk around. And I I live in、um, Claremont. I went to school at Claremont High, which was the 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 place where. Fast Times at Ridgemont High was researched, so I、oh. went to Ridgemont High. Wow! But I hadn't really spent all that much time walking around that neighborhood, and it's the burbs. Claremont is the burbs. It is Ridgemont. It is all of those things. And but when you look at it on a street level, it's actually pretty interesting. So that was when I decided, and, and I came home, and there was a congressional election going on in my district, and it was the most expensive congressional campaign ever. And I was just like, oh my god, I really want to write about this. Uh, and so I made up the the fifty fourth congressional district. It's 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 not real.、Um, and I, yeah, you made something up. I made something up. <laughs> Liar! I don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing that was going on at the time that I was coming up with this book was GamerGate. So I was like, well, how can I combine GamerGate and and you know this congressional election? And I'm like, yeah. So I guess what I have here. Is、um, a story of online harassment, misogyny, and mass shootings in the context of a highly polarized political campaign. Who could have predicted? Yes. Ooh, perfect timing. <laughs> All right. So, Lisa, like, like Steve and myself,、uh, you are also a musician. But unlike Steve and I, you've、uh, dusted off the bass and you're playing actively again. What inspired that? You know, I had a band for a long time in L.A., but it just got to the point where. I was the singer, songwriter, and bass player for the band. So I was doing the booking. I was writing. I was working full time, and then I decided to study Mandarin. And I was just kind of like, I can't do all of this. So that was why I stopped. I just went. I've got to commit to something, and it makes more sense for me to commit to writing than it does. To, as much as I enjoy doing the music, I was never going to make any money at it, and I really kind of needed to do something where I might. Conceivably, make a little bit of money someday, <laughs>、um, and so you know, I find myself back in San Diego, and a guy that I went to high school with, who always played music, he's played all of these years,、um, and he was like, "When are you going to play the bass again? Why don't you play the bass? Why don't we do something?" You know, and I was like, "Okay, sure." Which begs the question, Eric: When are you going to play the bass again? <laughs> I never played the、I、bass. I thought you、I、were a keyboard、there. player. <laughs> no, I'm a guitar player. Oh, okay. <laughs> You got to get this straight because you're trying to rope us into a band at、yes, Left Coast Crime 2020, right? We're a、yes. power trio right here. All Rush、I'm、covers, there, man. All Rush covers, all the time. We will be in San Diego for the gig. Yep. Thank you for your time, Lisa. My pleasure. Well, Steve, we're almost done, but before we go, we want to announce the winner of our latest book giveaway. In the last episode, we challenged listeners to give us their least favorite bit of corporate doublespeak, inspired by the new novel *The Big Con* by Adam Walker Phillips, which is published by our friends at Prospect Park Books. And here's the winning tweet: The reorg is to right balance existing business lines while aggressively pursuing our new blockchain initiative. Eric, I have no idea what the hell that means. But I do know that Michael C. Jacobs of Seattle is the winner of our book giveaway. Congratulations! 
Congratulations, Michael. And that was a whole lot of nonsense. <laughs> I'm so glad I do not work in the corporate world. <laughs> well, thanks again to Prospect Park Books. And that's it, Steve. Another show has come to an end. What did we learn today? Joe Clifford taught us that persistence pays when it comes to getting blurbs for your new book. And Lisa Brackman literally taught us how to say listen to writer types in Chinese, but I forgot it already. Folks, if you like this show, please take a moment to give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and find us on Twitter and tell us what you thought about the episode and what books you're reading. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.